Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Long River Podcast. My name is Graham Rhodes, and I'm delighted to be joined today by my friend Shrikant Vishnuwatan from Chicago. Hey, Shri, welcome to the podcast. Graham, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for uh, having me here. I'm so glad to have you on. We're going to be talking about your background today, your journey as an investor, and also a little case study of a company called Kinzale Capital. But before we get started, I just need to give this disclaimer. Nothing we talk about today is investment advice. You should always do your own research. So Shri, again, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on your journey from Chennai to Chicago? Yeah, I'm originally from India, a city in the southeast part of India called Chennai. Used to be called as Madras. I came here as a student to the U.S. pursuing a master's degree in accounting and forgot to return, a, forgot to buy a return ticket back home. I pursued a career in accounting, became an accountant in a real estate firm and then in an insurance company. That's when I decided to go back to University of Chicago for my MBA. I was an investment banker at Alex Brown in Baltimore and then Thomas Weisel in San Francisco. For a variety of reasons, I left investment banking and was a corporate development doing essentially M&A for one client, Union Bank of California acquiring small banks, insurance agencies, trust companies, and stuff like that. Then from 2005 on, I've been here in Chicago, essentially on the buy side, investing as a professional manager. Tell us about what you're building today with your firm, SVN Capital. So SVN Capital, I launched a few years ago, and I'm building essentially a wealth creation vehicle that's devoid of many of the skeletons that I saw in the traditional asset management business. What I am creating at SVN Capital is essentially embracing the power of compounding. The average time horizon for one of, for some of my holdings, I would say is ideally it would be time infinity, but I generally think about at least seven to 10 plus years. And it's highly concentrated. I think uh, somewhere between 10 to 12 10 to 15 stocks would be appropriate, but I currently own only nine stocks in the portfolio, globally diversified, and we're going to talk about one of them today. Really great point to see to the excellent second quarter letter you published this year when you described yourself as a curator. Can you let us know what you meant by that? Absolutely. I remember reading this book, Rework, by two entrepreneurs, Jason Fried and David Hansen. One of the chapters in there, it's, it's actually a pretty easy read. One of the chapters in there is titled, Be a Curator. They talk about how museums display only a few pieces on the walls. There's a lot more that's not displayed, and that's what makes it a museum. If they displayed everything, it would be a warehouse. So this resonated well with me and what I'm trying to create in SVN Capri. It's a as I said, it's a highly curated collection of businesses that uh, fit my investment objectives. As a result, I currently own only nine businesses. Uh, of course, I have a few that I'm not displaying in the portfolio, which I'm essentially tracking as a watch list company. And if a few things uh, come together, maybe in the future and may add one or two or a few of them. But as there are thousands of almost 40,000 publicly traded stocks around the world. The curator, myself, I need to say no. I actually need to say a no to a lot of to create this museum. There is an editing process, and so I leave out a lot that's not on the wall. The best is actually a sub subset of all these possibilities. That's very much what these two guys said in the book, and that's very much what I'm trying to do at SBN Capital. I liked it because of this idea that the portfolio is defined almost by what's not in it as much as what is in it. And when you pick just nine stocks, like you're saying no to thousands and thousands of other securities. So to me, like it was such a good way of capturing how subjective this is or how much it reflects like the personality of the portfolio manager. So I thought it was really cool. Thank you. As I understand it, you work alone. You, you obviously have a really wide and rich uh, network of friends and collaborators, but how do you cover the whole world looking for the 
pieces that you want to hang up on the wall of your gallery. If I think about your portfolio, we own a Swedish gambling services company together. We're going to be talking about an American insurer. I think you have a, a European luxury uh, goods company as well. How do you approach the search for good ideas? I remember reading this other book called uh, The Money Game by Adam Smith. In, in this book, he says, the first thing you have to know is yourself. A man who knows himself can step outside himself and watch his own reactions like an observer. It's actually, that's the same spiritual exercise that the guru that I follow today to keep me focused, to help me remain calm. It's essentially a spiritual statement that Adam Smith put in his book. So bring it down to your specific question, how do I come up with ideas? And that's the background, the constant exercise of trying to find out who am I and trying to keep calm. But then I also run all these screens, quantitative screens. I use Cap IQ. It gives me access to a global list of stocks. I read a lot, talk to managers like you, and let the process lead me. I wanted to ask that question because I think for me, one of the hardest challenges is prioritizing my time. So I'm always keen to hear about how other people do it. Yeah, I love this process of starting from one end of the string to end up at the other end. And you never know how you're going to meet, how you're going to end up there. Maybe that was not the original intent. That was not the intent when I started this particular research on this company. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an individual sport. You play it the way that you want it to be played and let the process lead you. Okay. Now, I love the fact that you talk about the journey to discover yourself. And you gave an excellent interview a while ago on one of your favorite books, which is about meditation. And again, yeah. referencing your QQ letter, you said that the market rewards inactivity. So that won't even put you on the spot. How do you keep yourself inactive, especially through periods of high volatility like we're going through now? What works for you, Sri? Is it meditation, yoga? Do you have any good habits you can share with us? I'd love to hear. Yeah, it's a combination of things. And it's not something that I have always done. I've arrived at that, as I said, as I already referred to, spiritual pursuit is something that is very important and integral to what I do and how I live my life. I've uh, arrived at this point where I have designed my life that suits me. And, and in the world of investing, in the world of finance, in the world of money management, particularly in, the, in that world, ego is the biggest impediment to most things that we want to do. When we, for example, when we think we have absolute confidence in, say, a particular analysis or particular type of question that you are trying to get an answer to, sometimes from the left field, you'll get hit with a, with a question, with so, something that damages the analysis. And that's, I think, partly because of this ego that builds up. And my exercise is to try and tamp down that ego. How people do it, how I do it, is probably different from how you would want to do it. And for me, this spiritual exercise helps me tamp down. I'm not saying I'm completely devoid of ego, but I try and tamp it down as much as possible. And that allows me to keep an open mind. And that open mind allows me to get hit with serendipity. That's how I, that's how I process my days. Read a lot, talk to people, keep an open mind, and then let the process lead me. I, I love it. And it's clearly working for you. So let's go back to the story of how one of these conversations led you to Kinzel Capital. Sure. Last year, a Chicago-based company called uh, Ryan Specialty Group, it's a wholesale broker. I'll tell you more about the business later when we talk about Kinsale itself. But Patrick Ryan, he was the former CEO of Aon, highly successful individual who has moved on. And he set up this company called Ryan Specialty, which is uh, this wholesale broker. He took the company public. And I spent a lot of time studying this business. Insurance brokerage is a fairly interesting business, capital light, high returns. So spent a lot of time studying his business. And that's 
that's what led me to try and dig up a little bit more into this excess and surplus. Excess and surplus is a subset of insurance. Again, we'll dig into that later. And this particular company, Kinsale Capital, does exclusively excess and surplus insurance. That's what led me to this company. And at the same time, as I was digging into this insurance business, one of my friends based in New Jersey, his name is Rajiv Lapesia, he runs a fund called RBL Capital. He was encouraging me to take a look at this company, Kinsale, because he had he knew me as a financial services guy who had spent time in insurance and banks and stuff like that. So he kept encouraging me and I eventually got around to working on this company. And today, here we are. So that's the serendipity at work. Exactly. Now, of the, the nine companies in your portfolio, why did you suggest that we talk about Kinzel? What is it that excites you about this company? Yeah, a couple of reasons. Well, the primary uh, reason is that was the last addition to the portfolio, which was uh, earlier this year. I haven't made any changes to it since then. Of course, as new capital has come in, I've added to uh, several positions, but as a portfolio addition, that was the last one. So I was more relevant in that regard. And uh, secondly, it's also a situation where this particular living the process led me to it. Started with some other company and some other industry and eventually ended up with something totally different. Finding ideas, yes, there are the, the quantitative screens help quite a bit, but not all eventual ideas are cranked out of a system very regularly. Okay, that's cool. So Kinsale is the specialist excess and surplus insurance provider. Can you put that into context for us? What is excess and surplus insurance and where does it sit within the broader property and casualty insurance market? Insurance is one of the oldest professions in the world. Today, we have approximately 1,100 insurance companies in the U.S. alone. Less than 100 of them are public. PNC Property casualty is one of two large buckets. The other bucket is life and annuity. And I'll try and funnel it down to Kinsale, right? If we look at the entire business of insurance on, say, a net premium written basis, that's the annual premium adjusted for certain things. If you look at that, it's about 780 billion of net premium as of 2022. Just about 50% is property casualty and the other half is life and annuity. Kinsale, of course, is on the property casualty side. So let's look at property casualty itself. That gets divided into two major areas. Commercial lines, excess and surpluses, generally a subset of commercial, even though more recently, some personal lines have also entered excess and surplus. But let's, for this definition, say excess and surpluses in commercial. And that's about uh, 50%, again, about 400 billion of net premium written. And I need to digress a little bit to discuss excess and surplus. Before a company can do business, it must become a licensed operator and meet minimum capital and surplus requirements. And they are called as admitted or standard underwriters. There is another category for a variety of reasons. Some of the standard underwriters, or in the case of Kinsale, they decide to do business on surplus lines or non-admitted basis. They have these non-admitted or uh, surplus providers. You know, they have the freedom of rate and forms. What I mean by that is in the traditional admitted standard underwriting process, there are certain specific requirements. You need to get approval from the regulators. You need to find certain forms with the state regulator. By the way, there are 50 states and there are 50 insurance regulators. Each regulator controls what happens within that state. So there are what I call as rate and form requirement and excess and surplus providers, they are free to do what they want to do. And so that's a big uh, advantage for these providers. About 80% of the commercial business, the 400 billion that I talked about, 80% of that is traditional risk. They are serviced by these admitted or standard underwriters. The balance 20% is what falls into these 
not admitted category. These are risks that are bespoke, complex, larger risks, and they are the ones which the ENS, the excess and surplus providers, uh, go after. Now, this is a business category, subcategory within commercial that has existed for a long time. But over the last few years now, the excess and surplus businesses started garnering a bigger piece of the pie. In fact, if you go back to say 2000, bring it to 2022, excess and surplus has grown at a compounded annual growth rate of about 10%, while the standard has grown at a little more than GDP, about 4%. So today we have just on the commercial side, we have approximately 500 billion of net premium and 100 of them is in the excess and surplus area. And what's driven that growth rate, which is almost like twice the growth rate of the standard lines? Yeah, there are a number of reasons. One particular, and this goes in cycles, by the way, I want to spend one more minute talking about the business of excess and surplus itself. The, there are certain lines that go in and out of excess and surplus. I told you that there are certain traditional underwriters that choose to write at certain times in the surplus market but they may also pull it back and bring it back to standard on the writing. So it's an accordion kind of a thing where things move around. Not everything is set in stone. But in spite of it, as I said, excess and surplus has grown at a pretty good clip. Within the larger excess and surplus uh, category, about 30% of, of that market is in what is called as the property market, the traditional buildings, the physical infrastructure, the property market, the balance 70% is in the casualty side, any sort of liability, that's one for things. About, think of 100 billion total pie, 30 billion is property and 70 is casualty. And sometimes what will happen is what is happening on the property may lead to certain things on the casualty side and vice versa. Sometimes, not necessarily Every time, but in the more recent time period, it seems to be having an impact. Since 2017, for example, there have been a lot of catastrophes in the United States, natural catastrophes. Hurricane season is generally from July through November. And for example, in 2017, we had a number of hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey, Irma, Bria, and then wildfires in the West Coast in California. And more recently, a couple of years ago, we had Hurricane Ian hit Florida in a big way. And so these hurricanes, what happens is it damages the properties, but more importantly, from the insurance side, insurance companies are then forced to pay the claims, increase their reserves, and many of them go out of business as a result of these types of calamities. Essentially, capital gets taken away. And interestingly enough, while these natural catastrophes have been ongoing, particularly since, the, since COVID, the inflation rate has gone up, interest rate has gone up, social inflation, for example, judgments from certain legal jurisdictions have gone up. All these have led to insurance companies increasing their premium. And essentially, policyholders are then forced to look for alternatives. Insurance companies choose not to write, write in certain lines or charge a hefty price. And for a number of reasons, these policyholders go looking for alternatives. And that's essentially, I've just given you a few of the points that have driven this growth of ENS. And more interestingly, it's, yes, it's happened in the last uh, four or five years now. Your question is probably more about, okay, what happens next? Is that likely to continue? looks like, first of all, if you go back to the natural catastrophes, the severity of these catastrophes is only increasing. People continue to go or live in the coastal areas of Florida. These natural catastrophes continue to hit Florida. And as a result, the damage is, in, terms of, in dollar terms, is much, much higher. That keeps going up. The severity, as a result, is going up. And the, the eventual policyholders continue to look for these types of opportunities. So that's from the natural catastrophe side. And as I said, as we all know, interest rates have continued to go up. 
since 2000, rates had been going down until the last few years. And then rates were going down. There were a lot of alternative, there, were, there was a lot of financial capital that came into the insurance industry looking for some additional alpha, right? There were products like catastrophe bonds or insurance-linked securities, ILS. These were essentially a play on insurance and financial products. That type of financial capital, given that rates have now gone up, they have started leaving the insurance industry. And so a combination of these factors, natural catastrophes, severity increasing, frequency increasing, interest rates going up, and uh, financial capital leaving, is all expected to continue to drive this ENS market even further. How long? We don't know. But for the foreseeable future, you talk to insurance companies, if you talk to the insurance brokers, and just participants in the industries, they all think this can continue to grow at a fairly rapid pace. Interesting. I have two questions just to get some further context. The first one is one of the businesses within Berkshire Hathaway that's grown quite remarkably over the last decade has been Berkshire Specialty Insurance. I'm wondering, does that play in this space as well, or is that a different subset of the insurance market? Yeah. Berkshire and AIG are two businesses that have their fangs in pretty much every subcategory you can think of. Berkshire, by the way, doesn't show up as one of the largest ENS excess and surplus players. I'm not 100% certain that Berkshire specialty is focused on ENS, but AIG is the largest underwriter in the excess and surplus line. The actual largest player is Lloyd's of London, but it's not an insurance company. It's more a platform. About 27, 28% of the market is Lloyd's of London and low 20%, 23, 24 is AIG. And then it starts, it's, the list starts going down. There are a couple of Bermuda companies like Arch Capital, Argo, and then Markel. I'm sure you've heard of Markel and RLI here in Illinois and WR Berkeley. So those are all the bigger players, but within that, and these players, they all write more than existing surplus as opposed to Kinsale, which does exclusively that. And yeah. Kinsale, by the way, has only less than 2% market share in this, at this point. And the other question I had was, am I right to say that non-standard policies are not regulated in the same way? And, and if so, what does that mean in practice? You're right in that statement. When I say non-standard, essentially these excess and surplus providers are not required to be submitted to the same form and rate requirement that standard underwriters are required by the, by the state regulators. If it's a company, RLI, for example, is an Illinois company regulated by the state of Illinois. Within the state of Illinois, it'll remain a regulated company, admitted player. They can choose to write this excess and surplus outside of Illinois, and they become non-regulated by that. Say they write in Iowa or Indiana. They're not regulated by the state regulator of Iowa or Indiana for those policies. That term regulation just means to rate and form. Rate meaning if they wanted to jack up the uh, premium on a particular line. For example, historically, workers' comp in California has been a problem area for a number of insurance companies. If they wanted to increase the premium on a workers' comp policy, they would have to go to the state regulator get approval for them to take it to whatever they wanted to. And the regulator may or may not agree. Mm. As opposed to in the excess and surplus market, by the way, Kinsale does not write workers' comp at all and not in California anyway. But if they wanted to write excess and surplus workers' comp, they can jack up the price to whatever they want. That's what I mean by non-standard or non-regulated. Got it. Okay. I guess that's really important for these, what you call bespoke policies, where they need to have the pricing, the ability to set prices to match the risk. Exactly. And in fact, it's an interesting point. AM Best is a, is a major player in the insurance industry. It's a rating agency. Um, a lot of insurance companies get AM Best rating and they publish it 
to get approval from a variety of players, the brokers, the regulators, and everybody else. AIM best released a report recently and said in 2022, actually, they said there have been no surplus lines carriers that have been impaired since in almost 20 years. There have not been even one surplus lines uh, carrier, as opposed to standard underwriters, for example, in the state of Louisiana, which again is another state that gets hit by these hurricanes regularly in 2020. I think it was 21. There were 11 companies that went under. When I say under, they go into liquidation. Insurance companies, they don't necessarily go bankrupt in the the sense of, say, a technology company or something else. But they went into liquidation. And I think nine or so went into liquidation last year, 2022. That keeps happening in the standard market. And ENS market keeps partly because of their ability to keep the rates high. Interesting. Okay, so... Just trying to summarize then, the ENS market is a sub-segment of the property and casualty market. Demand is growing as, as, as policy seekers look for a more standard product and supply is shrinking um, as capital is leaving the market, leading the ENS market to enjoy like above industry growth. I think I got that right. Yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned Kinsale is a pure play within this and it has, I think you said a 2% market share. Help us to put Kinsale into context. What is the history of this company? What is its story? Kinsale is a company that was founded around 2010, but the story goes back to the founder, founders, I should say, but the CEO, Mike Kehoe. Mike Kehoe was at a company called Colony Insurance back in the 90s. It was acquired by Orgo Group, which I referred to earlier as one of the players in the excess and surplus area. Colony was acquired by Argo in 2000, and at that point, a couple of the colleagues were able to raise capital from a pure insurance-focused private equity kind of a player called Stone Point, and then I think the Bronfman family, which is involved in media and all that. That's how they launched James River. James River is, is the closest competitor in terms of size. And there is some history, which I'll get to in a minute. And that's the closest competitor to Kinsale today. In any case, a couple of these former colleagues were able to raise capital and they formed James River. They took it public in 2000, late 2000, August, September 2005, about $18 a share or something like that. And in a couple of years after that, there was some interest from private equity players again. And Fortress, I think, was the one that sort of showed a lot of interest. And they wanted to sell the company to the, to the private equity players. Fortress did not invest at that point. They moved on. But uh, later on, D. Shaw, Elliott, and a few others made an offer, about $580 million or so, to, to invest in James River at that point. That's when Mike and Mike Kehoe essentially left. He had some kind of a non-compete. And by 2010, he launched Kinsale as a pure play, excess and surplus company. The statutory accounting books are available. You can go back and look at the financials all the way back to 2012 in the case of Kinsale. Historical analysis shows the robustness of how they have performed. Early years, they were getting their feet wet. They were still generating a pretty healthy return at that point. More recently, partly because of the growth of the market, partly because of how they have structured their business model, they've been able to generate a pretty high margin. And that again, in my mind, of course, in my analysis, I believe that it can be sustainable over the longer term. These guys have a great track record. They've been backed by private equity. They did well with James River. Then they left to form Kinsale. Questions for you, just to set the scene again. What kind of policy does Kinsale typically write? If you could help us understand what their exposures are in terms of sector, geography, I think you mentioned it's all within the United States. Also about the length of the policies and, and what kind of risks that they're underwriting there. Today, Kinsale has about a third is in property and the balance is casualty. What, I'm, what do I mean by property and casualty? Commercial property, imagine an office in the state of Florida, not necessarily on the coastal side of uh, Florida, but just in the state of Florida. 
because there are because there are questions about hurricanes, the severity and frequency and all that. Some of the insurance traditional underwriters have pulled out of Florida. I'm just using Florida as an example. They operate around the country. Uh, California is their biggest exposure at this point. But let's go with this Florida example. So in this case, for whatever reason, it's uh, say a small commercial property or even a senior healthcare facility within the state of Florida. And because the standard underwriters have left the market, property owner wants to get coverage. And so what happens is the owner would reach to reach out to a broker, the local broker or the company's traditional insurance broker. And the insurance broker, typically, if it was possible to write that policy through a traditional underwriter, would ob obviously be able to uh, reach that company and write that policy. Since it is not available, since a standard underwriter is not willing or able to write it, the broker then reaches out to the wholesale broker. I told you about uh, this Ryan Specialty Group mm. earlier on. Ryan Specialty Group is a pure wholesale broker. So the broker market gets broken into two buckets. Bigger, biggest piece is the standard broker market, but the other piece is this wholesale market. The wholesale brokers are the ones that reach out to a company like Kinsale and say, hey, we have this healthcare facility. Here are the descriptions, the location, whatever, and we're looking for coverage. And so that's a traditional property, commercial property and exposure. In the case of a liability side, it could be a business casualty. It could be a number of different categories without necessarily getting lost in the details. Any sort of a non-tangible asset, insurance coverage would fall under the liability side of things. So in the United States and North America particularly, in generally, but United States particularly, it's a very litigious society. And we're always looking for insurance coverage for pretty much everything. And as a result, one thing leads to another. They try to find a standard underwriter. When not possible, they go to this excess and surplus, be it for a specific property or for a specific type of liability. Uh, a good example would be, say, for example, there is a property <clears throat> with a glass facade, a three-story, five-story property with a glass facade that needs cleaning on a regular basis. There'll be a three-man cleaning crew and that three-man cleaning crew needs to have insurance to be able to climb up that building and start washing, start cleaning. That particular group to find that specific coverage, they may own a local broker who in turn may turn to the wholesale broker who in turn reaches out to this nexus and surplus and says, okay, here's a three-man crew or a five-man crew and uh, they want some sort of a surety coverage. And so somebody like Kinsale would do that, would write that policy, and that would fall under the liability uh, side of things. That's two-thirds of the total book. So that's the type of policy that they write. Typically on the property side, the duration of these contracts were generally shorter. It's mm -hmm. usually an annual contract. And typically the claim process is also fairly short. On the liability side, depending upon the way they write the policies, it can be longer. Generally speaking, a long duration, think of it as, say, 10 years. But historically speaking, if you look at the history of how the claims have come, come in, both within Kinsale and outside of Kinsale, by around the fifth year after the policy ends, claims are coming in. By the fifth year, about 80% of the claims have come in. Yeah, there are still a few claims that sort of linger on a few years later, but it is not like, for example, in the U.S., we have something called long-term care, which is in the healthcare side of things. Those long-term care policies are really long duration, 20, 30, 40 years long. That's not the case in the case of Kinsale or their liability side of coverage. So hope uh, that sort of gives you some idea in terms of what they how they write their policies. Yeah, I think so. So a mix of different industry exposures and also different durations of the risk as well. I think one of the things that makes Kinsale stand out, so where it's in this growing market, I think it's growing actually faster than the market as well, but it has like 
superb margins. So what does Kinzel do differently to be so profitable? Yeah, great question. I would list at least five things that sort of stand out. The first one is uh, their exclusive focus on ex excess and surplus at this point. Yeah, there are great, other great underwriters, Markel, Berkeley, and a few others, RMI, but they write a number of other areas in addition to excess and surplus. This focus of excess and surplus gives them, I believe it gives them a slight edge at a time when that market is growing. That's number one. Now, number two would be their underwriting expertise. They have number two and number three would go hand in hand. Number three would be their use of technology as a sort of a, a unique competency. They have uh, developed an enterprise software that sort of allows them, think of it as a sort of a rectangular box that they have designed for themselves. And so there are guardrails on all four sides, which allows them to play within that box, but at the same time restricts them from going outside. And the edges, think of them as their self-designed uh, limits on certain geographies, certain types of risks, certain types of policyholders and things like that. So that sort of allows them to remain focused on underwriting. And the other interesting thing about their underwriting process is they write, they operate from Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia is not New York in terms of total cost the infrastructure costs, the um, employee salary and things like that. It's a beautiful uh, town, but it's a much smaller town compared to many of the larger cities uh, that we have in the U.S., as opposed to many other competitors who have offices all over the country, all over the world, actually. So that, uh, that sort of, again, lends to having lower cost. Mm. So those, are, those kind of go hand in hand. And that leads to that fourth point, which I would say is the significantly low expense base, expense ratio. So I told you that the wholesale broker is the one that reaches out to the excess and surplus providers like Kinsale. And the wholesale brokers in, the, in a typical insurance universe, outside of it, if you exclude Kinsale, the wholesale brokers get approximately 175 to 18% of the premium as their commissions. Wow. They, in turn, have to share that with the actual broker that brought in the business. But in the case of Kinsey, they pay nothing more than 50. It may seem like a small edge, having just a 2 2.5% edge over many other companies, but that's a monumental difference that sort of compounds over time. And then finally, the claims process. An insurance company is only as good as the claims department. So the number of claims, how soon they pay the claims and how efficiently they process it, that's, that's extremely important. And in fact, within Kinsale, the second highest category, second highest division uh, where they have the uh, employees is actually, and the third highest is actually claims. And so per adjuster, per claims adjuster, they have about 100 claims that are open. That's significantly lower by a magnitude compared to many other insurance companies. So I'd say exclusive focus, single location, underwriting ex expertise in hard to place risks, tech as a core competency, significantly low expense ratio because of tech and this low co lower commission to the wholesale brokers, and then pretty clean, pretty efficient processing claims processing. Those are the advantages that these guys enjoy. Interesting. One of the famous mental models is scale economy shared. And yes. I'm wondering if that applies in this instance. Do they pass on some of the benefit of their focus and their lower costs and their modern IT systems in the form of lower premiums? Or is that reflected just in, in higher than industry average margins? Absolutely. They do pass on better coverage. It may not sound that interesting, but they do pass on that savings to the actual policyholder in terms of providing better coverage. But yes, they absolutely share with the eventual customer. Okay. Their immediate customer is the wholesale broker, but the eventual customer is the policyholder. 
I'm just wondering again, there's all these different layers in the sales channel between the actual insured and the underwriter. Does anyone at any point ask for Kinsale by name? That's a good question. The wholesale brokers that are, that are currently in business, Ryan is one that I mentioned. And by that, by the way, in the wholesale broker business, that's the only publicly traded company. The rest are all private. There's another big company called Amvins. All these, the brokers within these companies, they all know who Kinsale is. I'm not necessarily sure that they ask for Kinsale by name because they are the immediate customer. The actual policyholder may or may not necessarily ask for Kinsale by name. They're actually just looking for, by the way, these policyholders, the eventual policyholders are relatively small. By that, what I mean by that is the average premium per policy at Kinsale is only about $15,000. And that's, you look at even James River or some of the other bigger insurance companies, it's at least 10x more than what Kinsale is getting. So that again is, an, is a unique advantage that Kinsale has going after the very, very small employer base or the small end of the commercial spectrum. And so I'm not sure if they had necessarily asked by name, but the immediate uh, customers, the wholesale brokers, they know Kinsale by name. Do they come to Kinsale uh, mission? Some of them do, some of them don't. They do because the turnaround is extremely quick. So let me again describe the process. The policyholder goes to the broker, the broker comes to the wholesale broker, and typically the wholesale broker will submit this particular, this particular policy details to a number of excess and surplus providers, underwriters, right? Including Kinsale. And most of them think of Markel, Berkeley, any AIG. These companies have all been around for a long time and they've made a number of different acquisitions. And so the legacy systems within those companies there are 20, 30, 40 legacy systems. For example, I told you that Mike Kehoe used to be at Colony. And even today, without naming the specific company, even today, there, are, there is at least one company, more than one actually, there is at least one company that I know of that uses the same enterprise system that Mike Kehoe used when he was at Colony in the 90s. So <laughs> essentially, these are outdated systems and the Transition to the newer platform is not that easy, uh, as opposed to Kinsale, which is a relatively new start, and they have made it one box enterprise system that everybody uses within the companies. All that leads to all that leads to this ability to turn around exceptionally quick. What do I mean by quick turnaround? A submission comes into Kinsale, they turn around within two to twenty-four hours, as opposed to Markel and others, where it may take as much as a week to even get to the specific underwriter. So these are unique edges that don't necessarily translate into tangible numbers that we can point to when we look at the financials, but these are the unique advantages that Kinsale has developed over time. Yeah, and so they've designed the business to have a low enough cost base to be able to serve a small part of the market, which was previously uneconomical to serve. I think that's really cool. Like the data point that you shared there, where the next underwriter might have a average premium 10 X larger than kin sales. So let me loop back to my next question then, which is, and it's obvious, like <laughs> the depth of your experience in the financial services industry, but even still you're an outsider when it comes to this company, how do you get comfortable assessing the risks in their book? Especially yeah. given that it's a young firm, 2012, we're just over a decade old, but how do you get comfortable with their underwriting? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. I, I don't know if I have a concrete answer on that front, but obviously I spend a lot of time. I try to understand a few things, but here are a few that sort of help, that sort of provide some comfort. Insurance, by the way, is one industry where you don't know the cost of goods sold at the point of sale, right? That's very unique to the insurance business. The cost in an insurance policy is essentially the loss that's coming 
expense that's coming probably sometime in the future. Only time will tell as to how good, how efficient the company has been in underwriting a specific risk. And that then makes it extremely important to try and understand the quality of the management team. History of the management team, the quality of the management team provides some comfort in that regard. I'm not necessarily, again, saying that getting to know them, seeing the black of their eye or blue of their eye necessarily gives you 100% confidence, but to a large extent, history can provide some context to what's happening now and how they are thinking about the future. I've uh, met with Keho, Mike Keho and his COO, Brian Hedy, who also came from James River when Mike Keho was running it. And I've talked to a number of brokers, other insurance investors, and I feel comfortable with how the industry is progressing. But to provide a tangible, a quantifiable metric that may disrupt this thesis. Typically in an insurance company, when you see the loss and loss adjustment expense, that's the primary, that's the biggest expense that comes through insurance companies' financials, right? When loss and loss adjustment expenses are growing at, consistently growing at a rate higher than the gross written premium, when the expense is growing at a rate higher than the revenue, then there is there is trouble brewing. And you are absolutely right in asking this question here, particularly because you're talking about long duration policies, five, 10 year duration policies, and you never know how the future is going to play out. But that's why trying to understand the uh, mindset of the management, the process involved, how they keep themselves within the guardrails, what keeps them up at night and things like that, trying to understand these features helps you get comfortable. All that leads to, if you, as I said, you can go back and look at the historical historical performance. And up front, I told you there are about 1,001 insurance companies in the U.S. And the statutory accounting principle, is, statutory accounting financials is something that I can access personally. And so I ran, I ran a few things. I looked at the PMC as an industry expense ratio over time. Expense ratio, it includes everything. Yes, GNA, your marketing cost and your policy acquisition cost and all that. Expense ratio typically runs into 30, 40% in, in the larger industry. Kinsale, on the other hand, is in the low to mid 20%, significant edge. So you may say that's just a larger industry. How about the unique excess and surplus riders like Arch or Argo or others? Even there, the expense ratio is in the high 20s, low 30s versus skin sale in the low to mid 20s. That's on the expense side of things. There, are, I'm sure you knew this, but let me just clarify. The most important metric in trying to understand how efficient an insurance company is uh, combined ratio. Combined ratio is essentially a combination of two things, expense ratio, the total expenses, and loss ratio, how much in claims that come through and how much you pay. The combination of those two, if that is less than 100%, this is what Warren Buffett keeps talking about when he talks about insurance and Geico and all that. When um, combined ratio is less than 100%, you know that the insurance company is underwriting at a profit. And... And I look at the, the expense ratio of the entire industry, the entire P&C business, and Kinsale, in all, in all those comparisons, Kinsale comes out ahead. Now let's move to the loss ratio. Loss ratio, again, that moves around because of how the natural catastrophes hit or certain losses come through. It moves around. But generally speaking, for the larger industry, it's in the mid to high 70s versus PNC industry, versus the excess and surplus select group, that's in the high 50s to low 60s. And uh, Kinsale, on the other hand, is in the mid-50s range. Mm-hmm. So they have never been unprofitable, Kinsale. And the combined ratio over the last few years has been in the 70% range. Combined ratio, think of that as the reverse, as the inverse of margins in a typical manufacturing or service industry. 
being able to write something in the mid-50s, mid to high-50s in the loss, low to mid-20s in the expense ratio gets them to mid to high-70s compared to the larger industry at Progressive is an auto insurer in the U.S. that uses a lot of these analytics like Kinsale. Uh, yes, they maintain, they have a very low expense ratio in the 20-some percent range. But um, they do primarily, they are a standard auto insurance underwriter. And so they primarily write auto insurance in the U.S. and their loss ratio is in the mid to high 70s. But as a result, their combined ratio is in the high 90% range. Compare that to Kinsale at uh, mid 70s to low 80s, the margin difference is pretty significant. So I'm making this loose analogy that the loss ratio is almost like the, the gross margin or the inverse of a gross margin. And if you're telling me that Kinsale's gross loss ratio is in the 50s, it's almost like they're charging for a policy premium twice what their expected loss would be, which reflects like quite a lot of pricing power, which probably goes back to the bespoke nature of the policies. And also the fact that they're serving what was previously an underserved segment of the market. And then because of all this automation and the other factors you described, the expense ratio is also very low, leaving them with quite a bit of a profit um, as a residual. Yes, you nailed it, uh, Grant. That's essentially the thank you. You condensed it to a format that's more legible and understandable. I, I want to ask a, a couple of things now as we move to the end of this, this conversation. How do you think about value in general and then specifically with this investment? And I want to know specifically with Kinzale because the cheapest the stock has gotten in the last three years was six times trailing price to book, which maybe is five times more multiple than what one might typically yeah. want to pay for an insurance company. Right. Um, I'm just curious in general valuation and then specifically with Kinzale. Fair question. Before I get to valuation, these are the three important factors that I focus on. It's high return, high reinvestment, and competitive edge. In the case of Kinsale, generates very healthy returns. And high reinvestment, they've continued to grow their book at a rapid clip. As you've seen from the growth in gross written premium or net written premium has been growing at 30 plus percent. And they're growing partly because of the tailwind, right? Yeah, the industry itself is growing, so they're able to deploy capital and grow. In any case, given my view of how this industry is expected to grow, I think that reinvestment can, can, can continue on. And then the reasons I highlighted, the unique nature of the small employer base that they focus on, the underwriting expertise, the technology, the low cost and all that, that's what allows them to maintain that competitive edge. In fact, just recently, I had another conversation with Mike Kehoe. In any company, for that matter, the most important thing I'm always worried about is competition. In this conversation, I asked him about how, or whether he has seen any new competitors. And he's baffled too, as to why, how, there has not been any new competitor that has come in to disrupt what Kinsale is doing partly because of the sl small premium that they're collecting. Be that as it may, there hasn't been anybody that has come in. Yes, new excess and surplus providers have come in, but the focus has been on the medium to larger sized policies, which is not what Kinsian is going after. Only time will tell if new competitors are able to come and disrupt what that is doing. In any case, that allows me to look at, look at valuation from a slightly different end. Yes, from an earnings basis or from a book basis, as you referred, compared to the traditional insurance market, publicly traded insurance market, this seems ridiculously high. I agree. However, valuation can never be looked at in isolation. It has to be looked at in terms of the quality of the business, quality of the management team, and more importantly, what the future entails. So you bring that kind of growth over the foreseeable future. Yeah, currently it's trading at what, 40 times next year's earnings. Uh, I'll come back to the book and how I think about book. But if you think about uh, the future growth, that is uh, uh, a possibility. And if you get comfortable with the underwriting process, 
you can you can anticipate, you can essentially forecast a period of say five years or so. Insurance, by the way, is a fairly long cycle. It took almost 16 years or so for the soft market. Soft market is where the premiums keep going down in the larger industry to turn into what is now a hard market. Hard market is where premiums go up. Almost 16 years for that to turn. I'm not saying it'll take another 16 years for the current hard market to turn soft, but it's essentially a fairly long drawn process. Natural catastrophes have to abate. The social inflation rates have to go down. The financial capital has to come back in. Interest rates have to go down. Lots of other factors have to come back in for this industry to start seeing premiums to go down and excess and surplus market to see another soft market. I anticipate a relatively healthy market. I'm not saying it's going to continue to grow at 30, 40% for the next five, 10 years. Even before this hard market started, company's objective was, and it was meeting that objective, was to grow in a gross premium in the low to mid teens and still put up a healthy high teens return on equity. And now they're doing double that, more than double that. So they would essentially go back to doing, in a soft market, go back to doing that sort of a return. That's my expectation. Uh, of course, the big caveat here is they do not experience a massive loss. Some of the insurance companies, even the excess and surplus providers, have experienced over time. And that's why you have to get comfortable with the underwriting, with the management team and all that. Given all that as the background, I anticipate a relatively healthy growth. And if at current price, it can continue to maintain that healthy return five years out, what I expect is, say, EPS earnings per share five years out can be meaningfully higher than what it is today, which in turn translates into a very reasonable, even if the multiples go down from 40 to, say, half that you end up with a return with an IRR that meets my threshold. My threshold is at least a 15%, a double over five years, at least 15% per year. That's how I arrive at, I get comfortable with the current valuation. Let me go back to talking a minute about the book, about the book value multiple you mentioned. Yes, Without please. again, necessarily getting lost in the weeds. If you go back to Geico and how Warren Buffett acquired Geico in two tranches. The first tranche that he, made, that he invested was at a multiple less than book value. And the second tranche in 1990s was at a good healthy premium to book value. And if you remember, that's when he started talking about how book is not a good metric, is not necessarily the greatest metric to provide color on, on valuation. I believe, he didn't say this, but I believe you can you can back into why you think yeah. he said that. He has gone on to talk about the float. The float in an insurance company is essentially the difference between policyholders' money that we currently have versus policyholders' money that we don't have. The difference between that is essentially the float. You collect the premium upfront and you don't necessarily pay the claims immediately. It takes a number of years. So you have that luxury of doing things with that float. And that float is what he has been able to invest outside insurance, perhaps, and invest at a healthy rate and has continued to grow the book. I've tried to do that same exercise here. And by the way, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that process for every insurance company, primarily because not all insurance companies show consistent profitability as Kinsale has shown. They go through severe down cycles. I live here in Chicago. There are a couple of insurance companies, a couple of them, in fact, public, that have strong combined ratio that's 120, 130%, which is underwriting is done at a significant loss. If that's the case, I would find it very challenging to go through this exercise of computing the float and trying to come up with an adjusted book value. In the case of Kinsale, as I said, they've been profitable. I expect them to remain profitable and I'm comfortable doing that exercise. I compute the uh, taking a couple of factors into account, policy reserves and reinsurance liabilities and all that. We can get into the details later on. 
but essentially arrive at what the float is and you then adjust it for possibly taxes and what the tax adjusted float number is. And you can then impute, you can then make a decision whether that number is worth adding to the book value as quasi equity. You have to get comfortable with the entire process before you arrive at this point, at this juncture. I have gone through that process and I'm saying, in addition to book value, in this case, you can look at the quasi equity, which is the float, and uh, look at the adjusted book value. If you look at the adjusted book value over time, you said it has never traded below six times. Uh, I would agree. Uh, but if you went through this exercise, you will say that it has never been more than three times adjusted book value, of course. And it's subjective. You have to get caught. You can say, no, that's just uh, bogus. You cannot. Buffett can make that adjustment. You can't. I would uh -huh. humbly agree. But I'm just giving you another uh, viewpoint as to why that six times is not necessarily appropriate in the case of Kinsett. So you do that, it's about three times. Uh, it's still rich relative to the larger industry. Can it maintain that multiple? Maybe. Only time will tell. And that's how I arrive at my comfort level with respect to the valuation. It has done reasonably well. I expect them to continue to grow and maintain that respectable distance from its competitors. Wow. Shri, we are just so lucky to benefit from your decades of experience in uh, the industry. I'm blown away by the depth of your understanding there. Oh. You were talking about ego before and how one of the most important things that you do every day is to keep your ego in check, basically, so that you have an open mind. And I'd like to know what would change your mind about Kinsale? Great question again. A few items would jump up front. I told you that insurance is a business where you don't know the cost of goods sold. And so the quality of the management team, black of the eye is somewhat important in this analysis. And number one, any sort of disruptive change at the management level. Mike Cahill, Brian Haney, the COO, they are the two primary individuals that drive the business. And Brian Haney is an actuary. And even though he's the CEO, is an integral part of how the serving process in an insurance company reserves or the most important aspect of the balance sheet. The reserving process moves on. Those two individuals would be an integral part of this business. Anything happen to, happening to those two would be a disruptor. Number two, any major change in the other drivers that I described. The natural catastrophes abating doesn't seem to be happening. The national, I think the abbreviation is NWOL, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, keeps coming out with estimates of hurricanes and natural catastrophes around the country. And that's only going up, partly because of global climate issues and stuff like that, temperatures rising, whatever that may be. It's not abating, but if that were to abate, and the other factors that I refer to, the interest rates going down and as a result, financial capital coming back in to disrupt this nest growth. New competitors coming into the space to disrupt Kinsale's specific growth. And any underwriting missteps, unlike in other industries, typically in the insurance industry, what I have seen is it's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. And there is one that you have cited, you can be 100% certain that there are many. And that would be an indicator of trouble. That's why I mentioned that metric that sort of is an important one that I keep an eye on. It's not in any one period. It has to be over a period of time. The loss and loss adjustment, the expense ratio growing at a rate faster than gross written premium. Yeah, in certain individual periods, it may be off. One may be much higher than the other, but over a period of time, you don't want that to continue to be much higher. So those would be my indicators. I'm sure there would be other insurance-specific investors who may cite many other issues that I haven't considered in this podcast. I'd be all ears and I would love to learn. And that's an excellent place to, to wrap up. 
This has been a really fascinating conversation, getting to know you better, your investment process better through the lens of Kinsale. So Shri, thank you so much for your time. Final question is, if anyone does want to get in touch with you to learn more, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yes, I maintain a website called svncapital.com. I post some of my writings there regularly and podcasts like this. That's one way to uh, follow me. My email is shri at svncapital.com. You can write to me and I would love to hear from some of your uh, followers and listeners. Okay. Shri, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you. We first met in Omaha this year, and I hope, hope to see you again there sometime. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Grant.